ideally if you can address some of your potential prop 65 issues early on a, a lot of times it's those companies that are able to avoid the suits going down the line welcome to the startup cpg podcast i'm your host jesse freitag prop 65 sounds either innocent like a theater prop number or something fancy that big companies worry about but it's actually extremely relevant to growing CPG brands. I wish I had access to this episode a few years ago, and I'm so thrilled that if you're listening right now, you might be able to avoid a Prop 65 issue eating up your cash, momentum, and precious time. Rohit Sabnis joins us to give an introduction to Prop 65 regulation, which applies to consumer products sold into California, whether that's retailer, Amazon, e-commerce, etc. Roe is a partner at Keller & Heckman, an internationally renowned law firm with a broad practice in the areas of regulatory law, public policy, and litigation. Listen in as Roe covers the background of Prop 65, hot topic chemicals and how they may appear in your products even if they aren't on the ingredient list, how to assess your own product's risk, steps you can take now to avoid future issues and be prepared for larger retailers, and more. And a quick disclaimer, this podcast provides general information, not legal advice. You should consult an attorney for advice suitable for your specific needs. And unless you've entered into an engagement agreement with a specific law firm, you're not a client of that law firm. Hi, Ro. Welcome to the show. How are you today? Hey, hi, Jesse. Uh, pretty good. Pretty good. How are you? Doing great. I'm excited to talk about Prop 65. And I would love if you could start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background, and then we'll jump into some questions. Hey, sounds good. So I am a partner at the law firm of Keller and Heckman. Um, I am in the San Francisco office. A uh, good bulk of my practice is in the food and beverage space uh, with a focus in on litigation, including Prop 65, which we're here to talk about today, and also um, do quite a bit of food labeling litigation. Um, beyond the litigation, I work with companies on the, on the regulatory side in terms of compliance on Prop 65 and other issues in the food and beverage space, and you know, also do some transactional work, um, drafting um, full manufacturing, co-packing agreements, things like that and and get into other types of litigation as well. Um, I have a science background uh, in biochemistry that I like to use once in a while in this work as well. So that's that's my background. Very cool. That's awesome. You bring a wide breadth of experience to to this topic. And I think Prop 65 can be a tough topic to talk about because just the name Prop 65, you're like, what is that? I don't know what that is. That doesn't sound relatable. So, but we've seen Prop 65 warnings all over the place, whether we've known it or not. So can you tell us a little bit about the kind of warnings that are related to Prop 65 that we've probably seen out and about in the world? Yeah, you've probably seen or, you know, most folks, especially if you've been to California or if you're even more familiar with Prop 65 and, and you sell products into California, you may be familiar with the warnings that have been really and are almost ubiquitous at this point. There are warnings on consumer products, including food products. There are um, warnings that are required in the workplace. There are warnings that are required for environmental exposures. I think, you know, for food manufacturers and beverage manufacturers, the, the real focus is the um, warnings that you see on consumer products. And those um, 
look like? There's all kinds of different forms of the warning. The agency that administers Prop 65 is called OEHA. That's the um, Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment. It's an agency in California, but they issue regulations under the Prop 65 statute that, you know, provides for some safe harbor language for these warnings that are um, kind of considered to be clear and reasonable warnings. So the warnings that you're going to see, essentially, you know, they use the word warning and they say that, you know, this product can expose you to a certain chemical, for example, lead, uh, which is known to the state of California to cause either cancer or reproductive harm. And then the current safe harbor also says for more information, go to and then there's a URL, a website that OEHA has that is really set up to give consumers additional information on Prop 65. So that's that's kind of what you'll see on a consumer product. But there's all kinds of different forms of that warning. And, you know, we can get into it a, a little more later. But when it comes down to trying to pick a warning, you know, there's there's tons of them out there that you can find on the web. Um, some are not correct. Some of them are old. Some of them um, have been agreed to by parties as a result of prior litigation. Um, they may not necessarily apply to your product. So um, what I'm trying to say is that, you know, you need to be careful when you're looking at if you're going to include a warning on a product, uh, but what the wording is so that you have the most amount of protection. Right. And where did Prop 65 come from and when did it originate? I'd love to learn a little bit more of the background. Yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a great question. And it's kind of important to know, I think, some of the, the history on it. But Prop 65 um, was passed by the California voters in a ballot measure back in 1986. It was passed by, I think, 60 or 63 percent of the voters at that point in time. And, you know, something uh, that's been cited in recent litigation is that it told the ballot measure told voters that the statute would require warnings for chemicals that were known to cause cancer and not ones that were just merely suspected to cause cancer. Um, so it's been around since 1986. Uh, the agency that administers Prop 65, as I mentioned before, is OEHA. And on top of the statute, they've issued a lot of regulations that talk about everything from what the warnings are uh, under the safe harbor provisions, um, how a chemical gets listed on the Prop 65 list, which is now, I think, right around 990 chemicals are listed on the Prop 65 list. And so those include chemicals that are carcinogens and those that also have some uh, reproductive toxicity. That list has just been growing over and over the years since 1986. Um, there's a few different ways that those those chemicals get on the on the list. Okay, very very interesting. So it's definitely been around for a while. Yeah, since I guess that is what 36 years now. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's super interesting. And 
I'm also thinking for our brands, you know, a lot of brands in our community are on the small side and there is this 10 employee rule, but I'd love if you could talk about why that's not necessarily, you know, if you're a small brand, why you shouldn't necessarily just log off and be like, well, I'll worry about Prop 65 when I hit 10 employees or when I get bigger. You know, why is it relevant to, to smaller brands? Yeah, absolutely. So so the rule that you're talking about is is actually in the statute. And, you know, it's, it provides some protection for small businesses. And it essentially says that Prop 65 and its requirements technically will apply only to companies that have 10 or more employees. So um, that's, you know, like you said, that a lot of small companies think, okay, well, that's great. Doesn't apply to me. Don't have to worry about it. And in some ways, you know, when you're really small, you don't have to worry about it. But you do have to be careful about a few things, especially as your your business grows and especially as you start to deal with retailers um, and especially the larger retailers. But uh, so a couple issues to look out for is if you're using independent contractors to do a significant amount of of work for you, you know, just be aware of if you're getting close to that 10, that, you know, there are some issues with how we characterize an independent contractor as opposed to an employee. And, you know, if you ever get into Prop 65 litigation, you might have to justify why, you know, a particular person, let's say you have seven employees and you're using some independent contractors to do um, some of your work for you. There might be an argument made by the other side that those folks really are employees or should be classified as employees, and then you get at the 10. But I think probably a more significant issue is when you start selling into or when you're customers are larger retailers and even some medium-sized retailers as well, they are going to require you to enter into supply agreements with them. And most of the time, especially these days, those are going to require you to indemnify the retailer, your customer, if there's a Prop 65 issue. And even more and more of what we're seeing these days are agreements that require the manufacturer to disclose all Prop 65 chemicals that maybe in their products, and then um, make a representation as to whether a warning is required or not. And so those are things to watch out for, because even if you do have less than 10 employees, but you're selling into a you know large retailer, um, they're going to have requirements that then will make you subject to liability if that retailer um, is brought into Prop 65 litigation. So it's it's something that minimizes the liability, but it's it, 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 you know, when you get into those issues and agreements with the retailers, it's something that you're going to have to think about. So I would, as a small company, I'd think about it, um, be aware of Prop 65 and just know that, you know, as you grow and as you get into those relationships with some of the larger retailers, it, it will become an issue that you'll have to address directly. Right. And you mentioned earlier that the definition of this applying to consumer products. And for this group, we've got 
lots of food and beverage entrepreneurs, some makeup. So how broad is consumer product? Is it is it all food and beverage? Is it package all makeup? Like, is it kind of just run the gamut? Are there any exclusions? I'm curious about that definition. Yeah, it's really, it, you know, it's on the broader side. So in the in the food and beverage realm, it's going to include, you know, any um packaged food, any uh, packaging that you're selling into California. So if you've got a packaged food and um, the packaging itself could cause an exposure, that's going to be at issue. And then if the food itself could potentially have a Prop 65 chemical in it and then cause an exposure through consumption, that's also going to be subject to Prop 65. So um, unfortunately, with respect to food and beverage, it's it's pretty much all encompassing. Um, So you do have to look at, you know, your packaging as well as the content, the actual food or beverage. Right. Okay. That's an important note about that. It also includes the the packaging. I hadn't really thought about that piece. So that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I think um, it's sometimes, uh, you know, something that uh, folks don't don't think about um, or don't think about as much, but, you know, you can potentially have uh, situations where your food, your food content, you know, your your actual product um, does not have a Prop 65 chemical in it. But if your food packaging potentially has some potential to um, have a component that migrates into the food, then, you know, you might potentially have a Prop 65 issue either through the handling of that packaging or, you know, like I said, if it migrates into the food, then you've got that consumption issue. So um, I think those are a couple things to be aware of that um, that you need to look at in terms of looking at compliance. And you mentioned this list with, you know, 900 plus chemicals, but what would you say are some of the most common that you especially see for CPG? You know, is it lead? Is there what, you know, what are you seeing most often, you know, either in, yeah, in right. warnings or litigation? Right. So, so that's a good question. You know, there's, there's a ton of chemicals on the list, right? But only, you know, generally only a few are subject to really significant enforcement actions. So those are the ones that I would really focus in on. And, you know, the ones that we see pretty often, um, we've seen acrylamide has been really a significant subject of the enforcement litigation over, well, it's been going on for quite a while, but in the past, I would say maybe four years, five years, it's it's really been been quite significant. So um, in the in the food realm, you really need to look at acrylamide. And then a couple more are lead, cadmium, mercury's been around for a while in terms of the Prop 65 litigation, furan, um, ethyl alcohol, of course, ethanol in alcoholic beverages, that um, that's something you need to be aware of as well. Um, sulfur dioxide is another one. In terms of food packaging, I think the real big one is um, BPA. Um, styrene is another one, and there's there's several others as well. But you know, in, in terms of that, uh, it it is you know ideally if you're looking at the entire list and then cross referencing it with the ingredients in your food product or in your packaging, that's great. Um, another you know maybe um, more efficient way to do it is to really look at well what what's really being subject of the enforcement actions what's what's what are what are the enforcers looking at 
what is the California Attorney General doing in terms of enforcement? And that's a that's kind of a guide on you know where you should focus. I think I think right now um, you know if you were gonna pick just a few chemicals to look at, I would look at acrylamide, lead, and cadmium primarily because those are subject to a lot of enforcement actions. Right. Okay, that makes sense. And this is another one of those things where you know, brands listening or one of my first thoughts when I first encountered Prop 65 was, well, why would my product have lead in it? Like I use all, you know, I use I use whole food ingredients. I, you know, I work really hard on my sourcing. I'm organic. Mm -hmm. It's not like lead is one of the things that I list as an ingredient. So how do these things get into the the products? Can you talk about the, um, you know, cooking or growing or, you know, how these things show up there where we might not think about them? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, so so going to lead first, um, you know, lead can end up in your food food product really out of the primarily out of the growing process. So, you know, depending on where your original ingredients are grown, uh, if they are plant based, it could be, you know, absorption by the plant in a particular geographic area um you know we we see that it's uh, the the litigation involving food has involved lead for quite some time and so that's it's one thing you have to be careful about and it's really something good to screen for um in in terms of the lead so I would say also, you know, if you are sourcing any of your ingredients from overseas, one thing to really be careful for is when you get a certification from a foreign supplier and it screens for Prop 65 chemicals and other chemicals, you really need to be careful about those types of certifications or lab results. We have seen situations and, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize and scare people, but there have been situations where someone is sourcing non-domestic ingredients. They're getting certifications from their supplier that, you know, they're non-detect for lead or for other chemicals, and then they get hit with a Prop 65 notice of violation, and they find out after testing the product domestically that, oh, whoops, it actually does have some lead in it. Um, so that's something to really be be careful for um, in terms of lead. On the on the acrylamide side, you know, that is formed during cooking or other heat processing of essentially plant-based foods. So if you've got, you know, something like a cookie or a chip, or you've got nuts that you're roasting, um, those potentially, especially if you are heating them to pretty high temperatures, those can also um, have acrylamide in them that's formed as a result of their being heated and and cooked. So uh, those are those are a few things to look out for. Of course, there's always you know issues like mercury in in fish as well. And um, you know I think most people are pretty familiar with how that happens. But um, those are all things kind to kind of to look out for in terms of how the chemicals end up in your food or beverage. And of course, there are some times when, you know, companies are intentionally adding a certain ingredient to their 
product that has a Prop 65 chemical. And then you're looking at, you know, what what amount is is being added and uh, is that amount going to be compliant with Prop 65 or is it maybe going to exceed the, the appropriate levels for compliance? So, yeah, that's a that's a really good question. Yeah, that that makes sense. That's something the one that really caught me surprised was at my last company. We used maca and you know, and then we, there was a prop 65 warning. And I was like, I was like, huh, looking up the ingredients. And then I looked up maca and it was sourced from Peru. And it turns out the soil is generally, um, generally pretty high lead concentrate. And I was like, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I had no idea. I would have never thought about that. So yeah, it's kind of wild where the different sources um, can come from. It can really catch a person by surprise. Yeah. Yeah. That, that can really make a, it can really make a difference. Um, so, you know, if, if you are, if, I think if you're sourcing from, I mean, frankly, from anywhere, if, if you're sourcing from non-domestic sources, even domestic sources, you can hopefully, you know, you can go to your supplier and try to get some information from them or, you know, you can have um, potentially specifications that um, require the lead and the cadmium content to be below a certain level, hopefully non-detect possible. Otherwise, you know, it, it may make sense for companies just to make sure to do a little bit of testing, especially on lead is a is a pretty significant issue. And it is a it is, you know, always on the radar screen of the Prop 65 plaintiff's bar and um, also on the California Attorney General. So that's a really significant one to look out for and um, potentially test for as well if you have, you know, any concerns at all. Yeah. When I first had some issues with maca, I was like, all right, well, how do I find maca that's lower in lead? So I started looking up ingredient suppliers that had a retail presence in California because I was mm -hmm. like, at least they'll be familiar. And then I was able to, you know, get numbers from them and then kind of do the math on on how much, you know, you can have per day. And that kind of makes right. me think of, you know, for a lot of natural food brands, they're probably thinking, how do I how do I just not have to have a prop 65 warning? You know, I've, I've worked sure. hard to create this natural organic and then now I'm going to have to put a label on it that says may cause birth defects. It, it doesn't feel, you know, it does. It seems like it doesn't go together. So, you know, are there ways to if if you're if you have a product that is at risk or it has tested for something, are there ways you know, minimums that you can be under for these ingredients or their ingredients that have yeah. exclusion based on past litigation so that you may not necessarily have to have that label? Yeah, you've really hit the you know, you've really hit the important points there. So, you know, if you have a Prop 65 chemical such as lead that you know is in your product, I think the first place to start off is to look at what the prior settlements have been with other companies for similar products. So there are what's called safe harbors for some, but not all of the Prop 65 listed chemicals. And those safe harbors are established by the WEHA and they are essentially the maximum amount of a particular chemical coming from a particular product that is going to be deemed below the point where a company needs to provide a warning. It's just the safe harbor. They have um, those, or OEA has those um, for carcinogens, and those are called no significant risk levels. And they also have a set of safe harbors for 
reproductive toxins, and that's called the maximum allowable dose level. So they have these amounts that are expressed in something like, you know, 10 micrograms per day. So for your product, for a typical consumer of that product, that would be the maximum that you can expose them to through consumption of your product. And if you're able to show that you're below that level, then you're not required to provide the warning. Now, the issue is with that is going from, you know, what is the concentration of, for example, lead in your product to determining, well, what would the exposure be? And that is a significant amount of work to go between, you know, how much lead do I have in my product, if I have any? And then what is a typical consumer exposed to? And that's a whole nother question. So the, going back to the, the settlements and why I think it's important to look at the settlements is generally the settlements are expressed in those concentrations in a particular food. So, you know, they'll say, well, for your, you know, roasted almonds, you need to be below 225 parts per billion acrylamide as a concentration. And that's a whole lot easier to comply with than, okay, well, I need to ensure that someone is not being exposed to 0.2 micrograms of acrylamide per day. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Okay, hopefully hopefully I answered your your question there. Yeah, no, I think it it's helpful to understand that there's these thresholds and and to look at the cuz that was something also that was I mean, maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, but it's all very it's so publicly available. You can just look up all the yeah. settlements, you can look at all the documents. It's all there and you can it's search for it. And that that is kind of nice to kind of see what has happened in the past, especially for products like yours and exactly. know what to look out for or, or yeah, what's been happening in that area. Yeah, it's it's something that, you know, if you've got some time um, and, and you really want to look at those issues for your product, it's something you can you can dig into by going to the California Attorney General's website and looking at the notices of violation that have been filed and included with those notices of violations are copies of settlement agreements that have been entered into. And the ones that are really important are the consent judgments. And a consent judgment is a essentially a court-approved settlement, and that can be contrasted with what's called an out-of-court settlement, where the parties just have decided on a settlement and they go ahead and you know sign the papers. Um, the company usually agrees to pay, pay some amount of money, and then they agree to a warning um, or they agree to a certain threshold concentration in their product. But a consent judgment, which is approved by a court, has a little more weight to it because a court has actually looked at the terms of the settlement and looked at, um, for example, the the amount of the chemical that in that particular product that's going to be deemed to comply with Prop 65. So if you look at those consent judgments and you have a product that is similar to one that has been the subject of a consent judgment. You can look at those levels of a particular 
chemical. And if the product is relatively similar to yours or maybe exactly the same, that determination is not always the, the easiest to make. But if you if you find a consent judgment and it's got a very similar product and you're looking at a particular chemical and it has a um, certain threshold there that's been approved by the court in terms of the concentration of that chemical in the product that is deemed to comply with Prop 65, yeah, that's a good place to start in terms of am I compliant or not, is to look at what those other parties have agreed to. And, um, you know, like I said, you, you can find out the concentration of a chemical in your product relatively easily. So you can match it up with those consent judgments and those amounts that have been agreed to by parties and um approved by the court. And also those consent judgments have also been reviewed by the California Attorney General's office. So they, they just carry a lot more weight than the out-of-court settlements. But anyways, you know, it's a good good place for a company to start in terms of gathering information. The The only issue with completely relying on those is that there's differences between different products and you could always have an argument that, well, you weren't really entitled to rely on a level that's in a consent judgment because the product is a little different. The amount of consumption by an average consumer or a typical consumer might be a little bit different. And so there's those aspects to take into account as well. But but they're a really good place to start before you get into the more um, the complexities of exposure analyses and consumption analyses to, you know, determine, well, how much of my product does a consumer consume uh, on a daily basis or weekly basis or, or what have you. Right. And that that leads well into kind of thinking through, you know, you you have a product and you're like, and you're wondering to yourself, I wonder if I'm Prop 65 compliant. So, so it starts like, sounds yeah. like, you know, starting with looking at some of those, those past cases and then where else should people start? Is it worth sending out your product for a test? Do you reach out to your suppliers? Do you, do you always have to look at your yeah. cooking process? You know, how do you balance kind of you're, you're a startup with limited funds, but mm-hmm. this is a potential risk that you probably want to mitigate because it's very expensive to end up in Prop 65 litigation. So what are some of these kind of smaller steps to take to be like, all right, let's see if I'm, if I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, that's another really good really good practical question, I think. And, you know, I I think be cognizant of the potential for certain chemicals to be in your product that you're not adding as an ingredient. If you're adding something as an ingredient and it happens to be on the Prop 65 list, then um, that's something to be concerned about right away. Or if there's an ingredient that you're considering adding and it's on the Prop 65 list, then that needs to be flagged and um you know you can go from there um but there are going to be those situations where you you don't know um it's not an intended uh additive to your food or beverage and so you know if you can't get your suppliers to provide you with information on um lead or cadmium on um, you know other heavy metal heavy metals like arsenic if you can get that from them i think that's that's a really good place to start because then you don't have to do the testing yourself as a startup company you know you may be able to take a little more risk 
if you're under 10 employees in proceeding. And I know, you know, budgets can be, startup budgets can be pretty small and there's not a whole lot of wiggle room to do, you know, some significant Prop 65 um, testing and consumption and, uh, and exposure analyses and all that. So if you can look to your suppliers, I think, you know, that's, that's great. Um, and then, you know, just look at the types of the types of uh, ingredients you're getting, whether those have been subject, you know, if your product or the ingredients that you're using in your product have been the subject of Prop 65 suits, then that's sort of another, I think, red flag or um, indicator that, well, maybe you should look into it a little bit more. And then, you know, if you have a specific concern about, you know, something like, okay, I'm making this, I'm making these chips and I know that, you know, they're they're obviously they're they're plant-based chips. The ingredients are plant-based. I am, you know, heating them, cooking them uh, under certain conditions. So I might be concerned about acrylamide. And, you know, it's at that point where you may want to consider some, you know, investing uh, a little bit in doing some testing to find out if you've got a potential issue with an acrylamide or lead, cadmium, um, you know, or other Prop 65 chemical and just screen for, you know, the, the, the basics. Um, I would really start with those three or four, uh, unless you have, you know, some indication that there might be, uh, some other listed chemical in your product. Um, and then, you know, try to determine what's there. And if you've got a Prop 65 chemical, then, you know, maybe if it's if it's not formed during the cooking process that you're involved in, maybe you can go to your suppliers or maybe you have to switch suppliers. And depending on your product, you know, depending on the nature of your product, you know, you can consider putting a warning on. That's not always going to be something that you're going to want to do, especially if you're branding the product in a certain way. Um, if it's a, you know, health oriented, a healthy snack, an organic snack that, you know, I think like you mentioned before, it's going to be totally inconsistent with a Prop 65 warning, but there are warnings out there on, on food related products. I think there, there's a lot less in the food and beverage space than there are on other consumer products. You, um, you do see them on, on food and beverage packaging, but less so than, you know, other types of consumer products where there's so many warnings these days that, you know, there's a real question as to whether they, they are effective or if people just kind of, kind of ignore them. So. That, you know, those are those are some good places to start, uh, especially if you're you're on a more lim limited budget. And what does it look like to to send out your product for testing? This was something that was mm -hmm. a little confusing for me because I reached out like to the the lab where I would send out for gluten testing and some other allergen testing. And they're like, oh, well, we don't necessarily do like the heavy metal testing. So you got to go here and then, mm -hmm. you know, getting results back. There was some there's quite a bit of variation. And I was asking you know, yeah. I called the team and I was like, you know, how does the variation work? And they're like, oh, well, you know, obviously, and kind of we're explaining the process. So maybe with your science background, too, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about, you know, how do you find a lab? What does it mean when you say get sent out for testing? What is what is how are they testing it for some of these these main items? Yeah, 
Uh, and I, I can't give you all the details of exactly how the how the labs do the testing, but there are labs that will do Prop 65 kind of, you know, a battery of tests for Prop 65 chemicals. Sometimes those are not the same labs as you're going to use for other purposes, but sometimes they are. And we do see a lot of variation, a ton of variation in terms of what what the levels can be. And those can even vary from lot to lot of the same product of the same ingredients. And that that actually has been a big issue in the Prop 65 litigation because it is hard to control what the levels are. And it it varies a lot in terms of where your particular ingredients are coming from. And so you know, if you're getting them from like a few different farms in different geographic areas, it it can make a difference. And you can have variability that is sometimes hard to control. But, you know, if you're consistently using a few different suppliers and you're using, you know, about the same amount of ingredients from those suppliers in your products, you can, you know, have the labs do multiple tests that, you know, if, if, you, if you have the ability to do that, um, you know, running five, six, seven, eight, ten samples instead of just one. And sometimes across different lots as well, you can come up with an average. And a lot of the settlement agreements are going to um, have these averaging components because there is this pretty significant variability in what those amounts are going to be for the heavy metals, for the acrylamide. It'd be a lot easier if it was just kind of consistent, but especially for food. Um, And we don't always know exactly the reasons why that variability occurs, Um, but it does. So, you know, I, I guess I would be careful about, you know, just sending over a sample and having a lab do like one test and thinking that, okay, well, I've got pretty low amounts here, and so I'm good. Um, you you might have variability across lots within different, you know, across the ingredient supplier. So just something to be be aware of. But, you know, we, we have uh, labs that we work with. And so, you know, if anyone is, is curious or needs a lab, um, they can always just reach out and we can help them out with that. Great. And that's a really important point that you mentioned of the sending out multiple samples and not Mm -hmm. just relying on on one sample or you send out one sample and the results are crazy and you're like, oh, no, I got it. You know, everything's a disaster. And then you send in, you know, maybe the other seven samples were were fine. So it just there's all the variability makes it you definitely want to have more more options to see what the actual average is. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that's an that's a that's a really important thing to do and, you know, that in and in conjunction with not always relying on tests you're getting from from other other folks and I can't stress enough especially if you're getting test results from a non-domestic supplier we've seen some really wacky things go on with those with those lab results and so mm. it's just something to be careful about when when you're you know sourcing non-domestically because yeah I know I don't want to overgeneralize you know that there are going to be suppliers out there who are doing the tests appropriately um, but that we have seen you know, a few out there that the tests weren't what we 
they, they, they weren't really what they uh, said they were. And so we've had some clients that have had some issues because of that. So just something to, I think, just something to be aware of. Right, right. Something to have some caution toward. Some caution, exactly. And I'm thinking about, too, with Prop 65 being in California, so a brand... You may, maybe you have a few independent retailers in California. Maybe you're in a big chain like Sprouts that has hundreds of California stores, What if, or you're just online and, yeah. you know, Amazon ships to California or are any of those different, like the ways that you sell into California relevant, you know, or you have a website and sometimes you ship right. to a customer in California. I'm curious about kind of the jurisdiction of of, you know, whether it's a retail or an e-com order, is it all the same? No matter how it ends up in California, it's in California. Well, pretty much. If it ends <laughs> up in California, it ends up in California. Now, um, I say that kind of jokingly because the, we can, in the litigation, there are some arguments that can be made that, you know, you're not if you're not directing your product into California per se, there's some arguments that can be made in terms of, you know, should you be subject to jurisdiction in California or something like a Prop 65 suit? But, you know, those are sometimes tricky jurisdictional arguments to make because if you know that the product is going into California, then you're generally not going to be able to make that kind of argument. And so if you are, you know, if you're in a large retailer like Sprouts, you know, I can tell you a large retailer like that is going to require you to sign a supply agreement that specifically addresses Prop 65. So that's <laughs> that's one situation where, you know, you're going to have to look at Prop 65 issues. If you are selling online, and I think this is the case with a lot of the startup companies, is you're getting started, you're doing only online sales, and you could potentially have of customers that are located in California and that you're going to ship directly to. So Prop 65 is going to apply to those situations. And one thing that you want to be careful about there is that your website is also going to have to have a Prop 65 warning that um, is located in association with the product such that the customer gets the Prop 65 warning before they actually complete the purchase. So that's just something to keep in mind that that's an additional requirement in addition to putting a, war a warning on the product itself. And that that might actually apply to, you know, a lot of the a lot of the of your group. And so just another thing to be aware of there, there's ways to, um, you know, work with your web developer so that the Prop 65 warning will, for example, just show up in a pop up if someone enters, for example, like a California um, zip code for shipping. Mm -hmm. And so that's one way that, you know, you can set up your website so that it doesn't always have the Prop 65 warning on it. It would only come up for a California customer right before they're going to make the purchase, you know, when they've already got the product in their cart and they're entering information and they enter California shipping zip code, um, 
you know, if, if you can work with your web developer so that the warning pops up at that point, you know, you might feel that that's something that's advantageous because all your other customers in other states don't have to see that that same warning. And with Amazon, you asked about Amazon too. Um, we see a lot of suits that involve product that is purchased from Amazon. So it's it's really something to be careful about. And with Amazon as a as a retailer, they're generally just going to take the information that they get from you as a company that's using Amazon. And um, they're going to then either put a warning on their website or not based on what the labeling is on your product or what other information you're providing. Um, but a lot of these plaintiff's attorneys, sometimes we call them bounty hunters, they will actually just go onto Amazon and it's, you know, for, of course, it's very easy for them just to buy products that they suspect might have a Prop 65 issue and um, buy them from Amazon, um, have them shipped into California. And then they do a uh, they do some testing and determine it's got, you know, X, Y or Z chemical. And then you potentially have have a Prop 65 issue. Right. That That's a really good note about e-commerce and Amazon. So I appreciate that. And the, the term bounty hunter yeah. <laughs> kind of makes me laugh because that when the Prop 65 suit that at the company I was at last, yeah. you know, we had just done a press release saying that, you know, the gotten into Sprouts wasn't it wasn't on shelf set or anything, but the press was out and it had gone mm -hmm. on Sprouts website. And so I went to the, you know, new at Sprouts section and, you know, there's like 10 companies and then I compared it to the the group that was filing the suit and basically you know 50 to 75 percent of those companies in the new at sprouts had also received the same <laughs> you know received notices and i was like okay someone is systematically going and reviewing this section and then going out getting the product and testing it you know very systematically yeah, that happens all the time and that leads well into what does it look like to have a prop 65 issue do you do you get a letter in the mail? Who is it that brings up mm -hmm. these suits? You know, who is authorized to bring up a Prop 65 suit? And then kind of what happens after you get a get a notice? Yeah, so so there's a you know, there's a few different ways to have a Prop 65 issue generally. And you know, one is kind of the the litigation enforcement path. And then the other side that we do deal with, you know, more and more and more these days is when you are, you know, let's say you're you're negotiating a contract with a a big big national customer like the ones you've mentioned they are more and more requiring these representations to be made about prop 65 compliance like right out of the bat in the agreement so you know we get some questions uh from clients on well you know how should I, you know how should i approach this you know, what should I do in terms of, you know, making these guarantees that a Prop 65 warning is not required? And and that is, you know, something that is 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 really tricky to do in some cases without, you know, going into consumption data and exposure analyses and, and all that. So that's that's one kind of, you know, way that Prop 65 is 
you know, coming up more and more these days. And another aspect then is the actual enforcement. So an enforcement action that most companies are going to have pop up, hopefully don't have them pop up, but if they do pop up, they're generally going to get a notice of violation from a private plaintiff or bounty hunter, if you want to call them that. And that is a letter um, that is, you know, several pages long, and it will identify a particular product and a particular chemical that's at issue. It will have what's called a certificate of merit attached to it. And that is essentially the enforcer saying, you know, I've consulted an expert, and it's that expert's opinion that there is a potential Prop 65 violation associated with this product, um, the enforcer is going to provide the attorney general's office a copy of that notice of violation. But the copy that the attorney general gets also has attached to that certificate of merit will have some kind of evidentiary support for the violation, which is generally a test result. But under the statute, they don't have to give you that. They don't have to give the company that test result. So you'll get a what's called a 60-day notice of violation, that piece of paper that I just talked about. And um, from the date of the, of the submission of that to the attorney general and also to the company, there's a 60-day period that it serves a couple different purposes. It is the minimum waiting period before the private enforcer can actually file a lawsuit against the company alleging a violation of Prop 65. It is also a time period when parties generally have an opportunity to assess. The company has a chance to assess the notice of violation, look at their product, and, you know, if appropriate, contact the bounty hunter's attorney or the the plaintiff's attorney and um, you know try to work something out in in the rare case that 60 day period is used by the uh, and the attorney general or even other um, California public prosecutors to determine whether they want to bring on behalf of the state a prop 65 enforcement action for a particular product that happens very very rarely so most of the time you're going to be dealing with a private enforcer, but once in a while you have a situation where a private enforcer will bring a suit and then the attorney general will take over and then has the right to prosecute that suit. That's often a good thing. You might not think that that's a good thing, but it can be a good thing because the attorney general is generally concerned with making sure that the companies are compliant, but they're not going to be seeking generally a significant amount of attorney's fees. So um, when the attorney general comes in, it's generally a good thing and the settlement values can be pretty low and those cases don't drag out for very long. But you're still going to have, you know, the issue of, well, am I going to agree to put a warning on the product or am I going to agree to a certain level of the chemical um, in, in the product that I can, you know, maybe I can get under that threshold level so that I don't have to put a warning. So so um, that's the way those those um, Prop 65 enforcement actions start off. Most of them do resolve 
relatively early on. Some of them can go into litigation. And, you know, the ones that we really see that do go into litigation are where there really are issues with, does the company want to warn? And if the company really doesn't want to warn, then there there is some time involved in terms of, well, how can I get below the threshold levels, the safe harbors? Um, what, what is the plaintiff's attorney willing to agree to in terms of a concentration in the product of that particular chemical? And that does sometimes there's some, you know, pretty significant back and forth on that um, before resolutions are reached. And sometimes that does require some modifications in processing by the company, especially food companies, you're looking at, you know, how do I maybe just tweak my processes a little bit to lower the amount of a chemical or can I go to a different supplier and address it that way? Right. That's that's super helpful to learn a little bit more about the typical huh. process. And I'm also, you know, if Obviously, if someone gets a notice in the mail, then, you know, <laughs> they're like, hey, Ro, help. But, you know, when when else should people be contacting you? You mentioned that, you know, you're happy to help people find labs or if they're navigating, um, you know, getting into a, a retailer that's requiring them to, you know, give assurances about this. But, you know, when should people reach out to you? What kind of things should they reach out to you for? And what's the best best way to find you if they if they do want to chat yeah i yeah no um i i think that you know it's it's good you know i ideally if you can if you can you know address some of your potential prop 65 issues early on a, a lot of times it's those companies that are able to avoid the suits going down the line, um, especially as they get larger, they go into those retailers. And it's a lot of times it's the companies that, you know, they just get caught, caught off guard where they haven't been thinking about Prop 65 or they haven't been thinking about Prop 65 for a particular chemical. And then that chemical gets added to the Prop 65 list. And then, you know, lo and behold, once the warning requirement becomes effective, which is generally 12 months after the chemical is added to the list, boom, you see, you know, plaintiff's attorneys start to file those suits. So it it's good, you know, I think to um, look at if you've got Prop 65 chemicals in your product, or if you're looking for kind of an assessment on what those chemicals might be, you know, a, a firm like mine, which has a, a group of staff, staff scientists that assist us can do those assessments and, um, you know, refer you to laboratories that can do the testing to see where you're at in terms of the most relevant chemicals and then you know determinations can be made you know on your own terms and in your own timeline as to whether you can make any adjustments in terms of your processing or in terms of adjusting your ingredient suppliers so that you can get into compliance and that is just a whole lot easier and a whole lot more pleasant and more and inexpensive than when you try to do the same things 
after you've been hit with a notice of violation. You don't have a lot of time after you get, you know, uh, one of those notices of violations. But if you're kind of able to do it, you know, if if you're able to reach out to someone like me and my firm, we can we can, of course, assist with that and kind of flag some of these issues and see if, you, you know, you can get into a, a, a reasonable shape of compliance early on. And like I said, on your own terms. And that's really, I, I think the, the, the really important part is, you know, Prop 65 does not prohibit exposing consumers to these chemicals. So, but it does prohibit exposing them to to the listed chemicals without a warning. So, you know, you're not really talking about in in almost all instances, you're not really talking about a health issue here for consumers. This is more of a, a, a right to know statute, an informational statute. So, you know, I've, I wouldn't necessarily feel bad if you've got a chemical in your product and you're not providing a warning that there's some risk of a Prop 65 suit, but it's not generally, it's not a safety issue. But as long as, you know, you, you haven't been hit with that lawsuit you haven't been hit with that NOV, you can kind of take your time and you can work with your suppliers, you can work with your process, you know, adjust your temperatures and humidities and things like that, that all can kind of play into the levels of these chemicals that are in your products. And um, you can adjust those and, and try to get into compliance. You know, you you may even make the decision that, you know, you want to put a warning on the product. Um, if you're, all your competitors are doing the same thing, maybe you're more comfortable. Or, you know, that's just one little example. But I think if you start off early, you just, you have more time, you get to do things on your own, own terms, and you can you know, get into compliance or figure out what you need to do. And, you know, if anyone ever has questions of, of me or my firm, I'm always happy to answer them. Best way to reach me is by email, and that is sabness at khlaw.com. That's S-A-B as in boy, N as in Nancy, I as in Irene, S as in Sam, at khlaw.com. I'm pretty easy to find in a Google search, too, if you just put in my name, Rohit Sabness, Keller and Heckman, or something like that. I'm pretty easy to track down and always happy to, to chat. Great, and I'll make sure to link your email and your firm's website in the show notes as well. If people want to click on those links and wrote, thank you so much. I just can't tell you how grateful I am that you have spent time with our community, both in webinars and now the podcast, educating our groups about this. I just wish I had, you know, had some sort of opportunity to learn about Prop 65, you know, and get ahead of it and and prep for it on on the company's own terms, like mm -hmm. you just mentioned, versus getting a notice in the mail. So I just I'm so glad that our brands are getting the chance to learn about this now, think about this now, and that they right. have, you know, a resource that they can connect with if they have more questions. So I so appreciate it. Thank you so much for, for sharing time with us and sharing your expertise. Hey, no problem. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with, with you and, and your group. And uh, yeah, if anyone ever has any questions, feel free to feel free to reach out. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our partner, Keller and Heckman. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. This Startup CPG podcast is executive produced by me, Jesse Freitag. Theme music is by the Super Fantastics. We'd love to have you join our community of founders and experts. Get the invite at startupcpg.com. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now.
It's the easiest way to help us grow our community. See you next time.